Let's go ahead and get started, since I have no idea where Jeff finished, so we're going to... Welcome to 2 Samuel. Today we're going to be covering 1 Samuel. <laughs> because we just cannot figure adult education out uh, among elders, so... You know, they come up two weeks prior to the end of our semester last time, and we thought that was going to be good, and then they decide we're not going to have church. So we didn't get to finish 1 Samuel, and I think the end of 1 Samuel is really important before we start 2 Samuel. So um, I want to do this before we begin. Uh, Leland Vickers sent me this... um, sent me this a couple weeks ago and he said, I really believe this would be really good for you to uh, let's see, yesterday I don't see it well that is just terrible Not going to work. I'm going to have to go back and find it another way. But Leland Vickers sent me this, and I thought that it was. Um, I love anything by N.T. Wright. And um, throughout my life, I've increasingly found that reading scripture in public isn't just about feeding our own spirits and minds, but about rehearsing the mighty acts of God for God's glory. So let's think together about Judges 21-25. First, we're going to need some tea. I'm sorry, it's so loud. There was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's the last line of the book of Judges, the book which some see as one of the darkest points in the whole Bible. And indeed, it's a puzzling book in the Bible for many people. Many people, when they were in Sunday school, skipped over it entirely, except possibly for one or two of the key stories like Samson and so on. But so much of the book of Judges is a puzzle to us because it doesn't look as though this book is a good example of how God's people should behave. And often people are taught to look at the Bible to see examples of behavior, faith, etc., etc. But by the time you get to the end of Judges, you're crossing your eyes and your hair standing on end and you're saying, I'm glad I wasn't living in those times because it's a terrible time when, as it says, Everyone was just doing what they wanted. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And actually, one of the things that this last line of Judges is reminding us is that the Bible isn't simply a collection of good examples of how to behave, or even simply of examples of how not to behave. It's a way of talking about the larger purposes of God, that God had brought his people out of Egypt to be the people who would be the the advance guard of his ultimate new creation. 
But though he had shown them so many extraordinary deeds in the wilderness and indeed in the Exodus itself, when they then came into the land, they got muddled, they forgot, they didn't remember what God had done bringing them out of Egypt, and they started to copy the local habits of the people of the land, and particularly they started to worship the idols that were all around them, and they started to behave in the way that idolatry normally leads people to behave. And the results of that are written right across the book of Judges, particularly in the last three or four chapters, which are what some people have called texts of terror. They make you think, oh no, how could people possibly behave like this? And the author or editor of the book of Judges knows perfectly well that this is the way life is in that book. And so this is how the book ends, that this was not the way God intended it to be. God had another plan. He was going to reorganize his people. There was no king in Israel then, and the book is hinting, but there will be one day, and then we will know how to live. Now, of course, as we know from First and Second Samuel, to look no further, the institution of the monarchy was itself not an unqualified success, to say the least. But with the choice of King David, and we can imagine the editor of Judges looking at David and Solomon in particular, with the choice of King David, there was a man after God's own heart. And in principle, though David went horribly wrong himself, in principle Israel was called to worship Yahweh, the God who had brought them out of Egypt, and to serve him and to come together in worship in Jerusalem, in the place which David was organizing and which Solomon, his son, would build. So this line in Judges reminds us not simply to read one verse or one passage, but to look at the larger whole, to look at the whole sweep of the biblical story. And then as we look out beyond uh, this, the sequence from Judges on into First and Second Samuel, so we look at the larger biblical story itself, and we see even throughout the Old Testament, and even in that post-exilic period, with puzzled prophets like Haggai and Malachi saying, we've come back from Babylon, but things are still not right. We should be able to hear a word like the word that the editor has put at the end of Judges. In those days, the Messiah had not yet come. Things were still going wrong. Things were still muddled. And we should then look at that larger biblical story and we should say, thank you, Lord, that despite the failure and sin and indeed those texts of terror which are generated from within that context, you have in Jesus brought about your Messiah, who is not only the true King of Israel, but the Lord of the whole world. And even beyond that, we can look out and say, well, at the moment, we in the church have much to repent of. We get muddled. We produce our own texts of terror, our own ways of going horribly wrong. And we long for the day when Jesus will return, when finally the earth and heaven will be one and God will be with us. And we are living, like the editor of Judges, we are living in hope. And we look at the present time with all its follies and failures. And we say, thank you, Lord, that one day, one day, this will be complete. One day, when Jesus comes back to heal the world, to raise his people from the dead, then all will be complete. And we will look back and we'll say, yes, that's how it was then. But thank God for his larger purposes. 
of which we now tremblingly find ourselves a part. So may God give you faith and hope to look to his ultimate purposes for you and for his world and to trust him even if all seems dark at the present. Amen. How about that from the bishop this morning? <clears throat> so that was N.T. Wright. I'm sorry? That was N.T. Wright? Who was it? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. That was the bishop, N.T. Wright. Um, you know, the thing about uh, Dr. Wright, and, and for those of you who like that, that's free. You can go to N- the N.T. Wright page, ntwrightpage.com, and sign up, and that's a once-a-week deal. And I'll promise you this. This is, I've watched that ten times. This is what's fascinating about him. I'll guarantee to you, he didn't have a note. He didn't have anything written. That's coming. He knew what the passage was. That's coming from his heart. And here's the way I love how he studies Scripture. N.T. Wright would tell you he is a Pauline scholar. For 45 years in formal ministry and formal study and formal teaching, he has studied Paul. Have any of you ever seen uh, the magnum opus that he wrote on Paul? The 1,700 pages extant work on Paul? It's incredible. It's incredible. I haven't read, I haven't touched the hymn of the ground because he's so over my head. But to know what Paul was truly all about, he studies judges and he studies Samuel. And he studies kings. You know, I had one goal um, when I coerced Jeff into helping me teach this. I told him my one goal for this is for us to have a better understanding of who David is. And I've spent the last two weeks on, uh, I found an archaeologist, y'all, just awesome. And uh, he has all these YouTube videos and he's written books and I bought his book. And it, he's just takes me places that places I've been in Israel he explains what I saw that uh, just amazed me but the amazing thing and we're going to come up on this uh, in about three weeks uh, 1 Samuel 7 there is a fabulous passage there where God tells David from your house all nations of the earth are going to be blessed your kingdom your throne is going to be eternal. And the whole book of 2 Samuel, the whole book of Kings, First and Second Kings, book of Chronicles, is about how God is faithful to that line, the house of David. You know, David gets, gets a new house down in the palace of the... the come in, Randy. The city of David. He gets a new house. And... Um, He says, I'm in a new house and God is still in a tent. That doesn't seem right. And it's not right. And so he gets an opportunity to lay the foundation work. He bought all the materials for Shlomo and Shlomo put it together. Solomon. Still the most popular name in all of Israel. Shlomo. Uh, And he put the temple together and from that, you know, the blessing of the temple. But all that lineage, the house of David, keeps going and going and going. You have Zerubbabel, I mean not Zerubbabel, but uh, what's the Assyrian Sennacherib? The Assyrian king comes and he kills. 
He destroys every Israelite city that he surrounds. Every one, except what? Jerusalem. He doesn't destroy Jerusalem. He takes Hezekiah and he takes him back to Assyria with him. And then he lets him go. Then the Babylonians beat the Assyrians. It's just a fascinating, fascinating tale. Okay, I can't do that. Uh, let's go to 1 Samuel uh, 27. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you and I, Jeff? I think you you covered 27. I'm just going to cursorily hit it. Do you do you spend any time in your life talking to yourself? <laughs> I talk to myself all the time. It's a terrible. Don't, don't you laugh? I, I thought you were going to talk because about because I me. sneak up on Dell all the time, and she's standing in front of a mirror doing something, and she's not vainly looking at a mirror, but she'll just be talking to herself, and sometimes she's chewing herself out. And it, it's it's just, I think it's a great habit. Look at the beginning of chapter 27. But David thought to himself, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape the land of the Philistines, and then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hand. And that's exactly what this chapter is all about. David slips down to the Philistine territory. He talks to Achish or Aash, the, the king of that area. And he says, hey, I want to come, I need to come live with you because Saul's trying to kill me. David brings his 600 <coughs> men and all their families. And is it Achish? I didn't even read it. Yeah, Achish. So Achish... Uh, says, you can come live, just come live in the, in the city. And he says, if I come live, David is so smart. He says, if I come in, come on in. If, 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 I come in if I come and live in the city with you, people are going to think something because I'm a Jew and you're not. And they're going to think that's not cool. So let me go to one of the surrounding cities. Let me go. And, and Achish says, good idea. That's a great idea. Uh, I love you, by the way, David. Achish just has a man crush on David this whole time. So David says, I'm going to go over to Ziklag, which is kind of halfway between the Philistine cities and halfway between Israel. And he stays at Ziklag and that with all those families. Now, how does David support all those families that are with him? They raid. Here's what they do. He tells Achish, I'm raiding Israel. I'm raiding Israelite cities. But he doesn't. He goes and he raids uh, the people in the Negev. He raids all these other little vassal cities. And how do they support themselves? By raiding other little vassal cities. But David has a very experienced 600 men. And they can take anybody they want to take. Here's the trick. If he does that, that's going to get back to Achish. Right? Achish is going to hear. David's not, he's not doing what he tells you he's doing. He tells you that he's raiding Israelite cities. He's not. He's raiding other cities. Philistine cities, Kerizites, Perizzites, Amalekites. He's raiding all those guys. And he's not telling you the truth. But you know how they never find out? David kills everything in each city that he raids. 
He wipes them out. There's no one left to tell the tale. And then when he goes back, when he goes back to Ziklag, he takes a percentage of the things that he catches and he sends it to Achish. Achish thinks, this guy is awesome, man. He's wiping out my enemy for me and he gives me booty on top of that. This is just a fabulous relationship. And he, David keeps doing that for 14 months. And in chapter 28, um, in chapter 28, Achish calls David's bluff. He says, David, I'm going to attack Israel. And I want you to be right there with me. But David plays it cool. He goes, okay, this is what I've been waiting for. This is great. And Achish says, you've been so faithful and I love you so much. Why don't you be my personal bodyguard? And so he's with Achish in the back as they're going to raid these cities. Now, Samuel died. So right there, we have a problem. Who's writing this? If Samuel wrote Samuel and 2 Samuel, and Samuel died in 1 Samuel, who's writing this? We don't know, but somebody's writing this. Let, let me... Well, let me tell you what I, would, what I would say about that. Every one of these guys who are great prophets, great men, had followings. Who wrote John 21? Anybody know? More than likely the elders at Ephesus. John was dead. To finish these, there are, you know, let me say it like this. Up until the year 200 A.D., there was a group of people that worshipped John the Baptist as Messiah. It's one of the reasons why John wrote the first few chapters of John. He says, he was not the Messiah. And he never claimed to be the Messiah. He said, I'm not worthy. To... But all these people think, oh, he, there could be nobody better than him. I just love me some John. And that that's... that. So, somebody who loved Samuel and who followed Samuel wrote, finished writing uh, this. Um, look at verse uh, 3. Now Samuel was dead and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. And Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritualists from the land. It was April the 12th, 1945. In the um, Führer bunker, in the Führer bunker in Berlin, they received a phone call from Joseph Goebbels, and Goebbels got on the phone and talked to Hitler, and Goebbels said, "I know it's been a rough month. I know that uh, things have not gone our way, but I'm calling you to tell you, President Roosevelt." Things are looking up. The horoscope people that we pay told us at the beginning of April through the spring it was going to be a rough time. But the second part of April is ours. We're going to take it and we're going to achieve the ultimate final victory. They were, the point there is they were consulting horoscopes. Saul has got a problem. 
God's not talking to him. He has nobody to lean on. Who does he go to for advice? And he's turmoil. He's in turmoil. Uh, cracking up, he has delusions where he is uh, mentally insane. Look at verse 4 of chapter 28. The Philistines assembled and they came up and they set up camp at Shunammim. While Saul was gathered, all the Israelites set up camp at Gilboa. And Saul saw the Philistine army. He was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer. By dreams or by Urim and Thummim or by prophets. Saul said to the attendants, find me a woman who's a medium that I may go and inquire of her. No, there's a problem with that. What's the problem? The writer tells us that Saul had put all the mediums and anyone that did that kind of stuff out. It was punishable by death. But one of the guys says, well, I know this lady over indoor. I'm not saying she's practicing, but I know it. And so Saul put on a wig and dressed like a woman. I don't know. But he, he hid himself. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult the spirit for me, she, he said, and bring up the, for me the one that I named. But the woman said to you, Surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and the spiritualists from the land. Why have you set a trap for me to bring about my death? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. And then the woman said, Well, who do you want me to bring up? And she said, Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, I'm not going to even attempt to explain it. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul! Why are you dressed in women's clothes? Um, and the king said, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming from up out of the ground. What does he look like? He's an old man wearing a robe coming up. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. Think about the relationship that Saul and Samuel had. How Samuel had chosen him. How God had directed Samuel to choose him from among all them, everyone else. And how Saul, how Samuel had helped him become king. And Saul prostrated himself to the ground. He bowed down with his face on the ground. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. And the Philistines are fighting against me. God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by the prophets or by my dreams. So I've called you to tell me what to do. Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away and you've become your enemy? The Lord has done what He predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your neighbors today. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out His fierce wrath against the Amorites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand you over to both Israel and the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Not what he wanted to hear. And the woman tried to make things better because she saw the great distress. She said, You look like you need to eat something. And he said, I haven't eaten, and I don't want to eat. And the men that were with him said, let, let her fix this. So she killed a fatted calf. Which 
puts me to shame because if someone were to come to my house and we were to celebrate, we'd have to go out there. We have no fatty calf. We don't have anything close to a fatty calf. How many of y'all are saving a meal for a prophet? I think it'd be a good thing to do. Um, and so she fixed a meal and uh, that's the way it works. Now watch this. We go now back to David. We're going to go check out David. So we just keep going from one to the other. He can't tell a whole story. He he's like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Now <coughs> he goes back to David. The Philistines are gathered by forces at Aphek, the Israel camp, in the spring near Jezreel. Uh, uh, Somebody's got to keep up with the time. Somebody know what time? What kind of time we have? I'm sorry? 11, uh, 10 45. Okay. So we got three minutes for this. So if this if this is Israel and this is Jerusalem, Jerusalem's right here, Jericho's here. Um this is Carmel, Mount Carmel, okay? And this, sports fans, is the Jezreel Valley. Anything to anybody yet? This is Megiddo, Har Megiddo, means Mount of Megiddo. This is the Mount, and this is the Jezreel Valley. In the middle of the Jezreel Valley, there's a little spring and I don't know, going back to Deborah, going back uh, to all those parts. Remember when, uh, what was the battle that Deborah and Barak fought and, they, and the Philistines brought their chariots? And the chariots got stuck in the mud, the Philistines, I mean, and Israel won a great victory. Jezreel Mountain, the spring floods every spring. And God worked that out, then all took the chariots away. A chariot at that point in time was like having a tank. Um, just keep that in mind because we're going we're gonna to come back to that great map. Ha. That's a lovely job. Thank you. I appreciate that. See it, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. Just hard to guess. It's just like being there again. Huh? It's just like being there again. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Randall didn't make his heart, did he? Do this. Here's this area right here is Philistine territory. Does anybody know what that is today? The gods of spirit. It's never been a part of Israel, ever at any point has it ever been a part of Israel. The gods of spirit. And so this is where the Philistines are, and this is like where Ziklag. So David was really, I mean, he was down at the edge of the Philistine deal where they wouldn't bother. That's where Ziklag is. So they've moved out, the Philistines have moved out, and they've come to right about here. That's where, uh, well, where are they? Where Achish? No, where, where are they? In other words, the battle is right here. That's where the... Uh, uh, Valley of Elah is where David fought with Goliath. 
Because when Israel would see the Philistines coming, Israel would have to mount an army to keep them from invading. And that's how this works. And it, it, there's places in Scripture where it says, it was in the spring where kings went out to battle. I don't know why, but they just thought that would be a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, David has his 600 men, and they're with Achish. And the Philistines look around and said, Is this not David, an officer of Saul, the king of Israel? He's already been, and Achish said, He's already been with me for over a year from the day uh, that he left Saul until now, and I've never found any fault with him. But the Philistine commanders were angry and said, Send this man back away and return to the place where you assigned him. He must not go with us, or he will turn against us during fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our, our own men? Isn't this the one? And then they sang that country song. I'm telling you, country music. It's and Achish called David and said, you're going to have to, I know you've been reliable, and I'd be pleased to have you serve him in the army, but from this day until now, I found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve. Turn back, go in peace, and do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. Boop! Notice how David plays it up. But what have I done? I'm telling you, if you read this in its entirety, it's fascinating how God weaves this whole thing and David comes off looking like incredible. But David goes back, um, look at 30. David has been reached Ziklag on the third day. And now the Amalekites had raided Negev and Ziklag the Negev is down by the lower part of the Dead Sea. That's evidently where, uh, where they were staying. They burned it. They took the women captive, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off and went their way. When David and his men went to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men got on their horses and immediately left. No. They were so overcome with grief that he and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left. David had two wives, Ahinam of Jezreel and Abigail, a widow of Nabal at Carmel. David was greatly distressed because of the men that were taken of, of, of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because the, <clears throat> David's men turned on him. Why are we up there doing this? We ought to be protecting our wives. And everything they had was taken. So David said, unlike Saul, go get me Abathar the priest. Now Abathar, remember him from Nob? See, this is the whole purpose of this. So that we have all these stories to go back on and we know who everybody is. So we got to know who everybody is. So Abathar is the youngest son of the high priest at Nob when Saul destroyed all the priests of Nob. And Abathar escaped. Not only did he escape, but he escaped with the Uman and the Thummim. Cool. He's got the stuff. So they took that. I don't know how they, how they use it. Some people say you got to stand and face to eat, face east. And the Uman is on one side and the thumb is on the other side. And whichever one glows, yes or no, that's how you answer. I don't know. That's as good as anything I've ever heard. 
And David said, bring me the ephod. And Abathar brought it. He thought ephod was just the best that contained the Abathar brought it. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he said, and you will certainly overtake them and succeed in rescue. David and his 600 men went as far as the Besor Ravine, I don't know where that is, and, and were some stayed behind. 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and his 400 men went to the rescue. By the way, in 2 Samuel, we get to look at David and his three mighty men. Does anybody know about those? Have you ever looked at David and his three mighty men? I used to be a youth minister. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories was about Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. That's coming up. We're going to cover it. These guys were incredible. So I imagine these 400 fighting men are where the three came from. These are, these are valiant warriors. They found an Egyptian in the field, brought him to David. He gave him water and food to drink, part of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. To whom do you belong and where do you come from? I'm an Egyptian. I'm a slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. They raided the Negev and the Kerizites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag. David said, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He said, if you swear to me before God, you won't kill me or hand me over to the master. I'll take you down to them. And he led David down and they scattered over the countryside. Look at 17. David fought them from dusk in the evening till the next day and none of them got away except for 400 men who rode off on camels. I'd like to see that. <laughs> David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including two, his two wives. Nothing was missing. Young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else he had taken. David brought everything back. He took the flocks and the herds and his men and he drove them ahead with other livestock saying, this is David's plunder. But when he got back to Israel, when he got back to he divided that plunder among all the tribes that he had been stealing from. This is a great turning point. This is a turning point. We're going to 31. The context of this is 28. Remember 28 we were talking about Saul. And then we went for two chapters and we talked about David. And now... This really, the first sentence here should be, and now we join the battle of Gilboa already in progress. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel fled before the Philistines were too mighty. And the Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malachasua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the archers overtook him, and he was critically wounded. And he said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. The armor bearer was terrified, and he would not do it. Why? I'm sorry? He was the Lord's anointed. Perfect. 
Why did David, why did David never kill Saul? David would get near Saul, he'd catch him in a cave, and he'd come out and he'd go, I can't do it. He is the Lord's anointed. That doesn't come easily. When God says you're anointed for something, I'm not going to get it. No, I'm not going to get it. And the armor bearer saw Saul was so Saul took his own sword and he fell on. When the armor bearer saw that he was dead, he too fell on the sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armor bearer, and all the men died together the same day. And when the Israelites along the valley, those across the Jordan, saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. Think about that. The Philistines have won. They've won this battle here. And now all of the cities here <coughs> fled. They got out of Dodge. You remember when David or when Solomon built the temple and Hiram of Tyre provided what? I'm sorry? Cedars. Cedars of Lebanon. Provide all the cedars and gold. And Solomon was so happy at the, at the dedication Solomon says, Hiram, you've been a good boy. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you ten cities in the Galilee. What's about what's the next verse? Hiram was greatly disappointed. That's how little he, he thought David thought of him here. This is the uh, up, up here. These are the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. Out of you, O Naphtali and Zebulun, is going to come a great light. Give you a light unto the nations. No matter how little you think of that area, that's where Jesus came from. That's it. Um, so the next day the Philistines came to strip the dead. They found Saul and his three sons on Mount Fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim news of the temple and of their idols among the people. Uh, that proclaim, you see that word proclaim? That's a word that uh, in Greek is euangelion. Uh, and most of the time the word euangelion is used. It's to pronounce a pronouncement from a king. This is fabulous. This is what, and the Romans used it extensively. This is what Tiberius did. Look, come and look at what Tiberius did. We would call it the good news. The God, that's how we translate it. Good news gospel. It's the gospel. Proclaim the good news. Jesus has come. Um, they put their armor in the temple of the Asterisk and fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. Um, so. I searched diligently in, in all my pictures last night. What is that? Um, I don't want any of this. Uh, this is the only one that I could come up with. 
For bet. <laughs> what power? The projector, I think. Why would it do that? That doesn't sound good. Ah. Fred, why don't you work on this? <laughs> you don't want me working on technology, I can tell you that. Who wants to work on this? <laughs> to get this picture up. This Who's the good. youngest person in here? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody go get one of my grandchildren. I don't even know. Is it, That's not Sony. Anyway, it's a that's great... If you want to come up here and look, it's right here. <laughs> Beth Shan is a place. Um, well, it's 10 miles. Beth Shan's right, right about there. It's 10 miles from the Jordan River. And on this side of Beth Shan is Mount Gilboa. So it's not far from Mount Gilboa. And Mount Gilboa is it's innocuous. I mean, it's just a, just a mountain. And everybody says, oh, what's Mount Gilboa? That's how long is that? There's nothing up there. But Bethshan is a city that was Canaanite, and um, then it became Greek. When Alexander the Great came in 250 BC, he this the northern part up here. He had a group of cities called the Decapolis, the Decapolis, the ten cities. Bethshan and Sepphoris are the only two that are found on the western side of the Jordan. All the rest of them are over here. But this city, I want that picture up there. Why does, okay. Um, would you reckon I push something there? How? Yeah. Greenland's good. Come on. Speak to the rock, Randy. <laughs> okay. Um, we don't want that. It's searching. That's a good Okay, there so that's Shan. Great, great. Okay, so you see all these colonnades. Turn the lights off. I'm sorry? No. So you see all these uh, colonnades. This is what's called the Cardio Maximus. This is a street, and at the end of the Cardio Maximus, this is Tel Metshan. And up on top here was a temple that the Greeks built, then taken over by the Romans. And all of this is marble. This is some of the best marble. Look at this marble. Right here. There's no marble in Israel. They shipped all this marble in and made these. It was a fabulous city. The Greek city, Greek name is Scythopolis. It's a fabulous city. So, this is the Tel Shan, and that must be Canaanite. Because this was already here when the Greeks came, 250 BC. That Tel was there. No one's ever excavated that Tel. But they get several million dollars and they start doing it. But it's better left like this because they put Saul and Jonathan and all of the sons' bodies, they nailed it against that. Mount Gilboa is over here. Right behind this is the Jezreel Valley. Hard again. 
That's the Valley and the Gita. So that's important. They put Saul's body up there, and who came and got it? Look at this. Don't let me run over time now. The people from Jabesh Gilead. Good. That's about right. The people from Jabesh Gilead. So who are the people from Jabesh Gilead? They owe their sight to Saul. Amen. Jabesh Gilead is right here. They owe their sight to Saul because it was it. Naboth or Naaman or something? Um, you'd think I'd take a course for this. Was going to put out all of the right eyes of the people of Jabesh Gilead. And it made Saul had just been anointed king and he. Summoned everybody, said, We gotta go and help these people. And they wouldn't help, and they defeated whoever it was, Philistines, Amalekites, Moabites, whatever. Defeated them and saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. Now let me give you another. Remember that horrible, horrible story at the end of Judges where the priest marries a woman or whatever, and uh, he the the men of some city come and say, We want her, send her, and he sends her out. And the men of that city abuse her all night long to the point that she dies. Remember that? And he cuts her body up because it was the people from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. <coughs> Who's the most famous Benjamin? Saul. Saul was a Benjamin. Remember, they went in, they killed all the men. All the tribes of Israel went in and killed all the men. And they, they went, oh, this is terrible. They don't. They'll never be able to marry. We've killed a whole tribe of Israel. And they gave them wives from where? Jabesh Gilead. So not only do these people owe their sight to Saul, but their kinfolk. So they sneak out in the middle of the night and they take Saul's body. Saul got to take it back to their site and burn them. Burn them at night. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Read these things with intent and a promise. By the end of 2 Samuel, you're going to know about the house of David and why we serve a king that is sitting on David's throne as God has commanded and will be eternal. Yes. Somehow or another, all of this sounds more like the issues in the Ukraine and Sudan. And it seems to me that if Jesus were to have appeared in the midst of all that, he would have condemned it all, including what they didn't do. It, it, it's just, it sounds really corrupt. It would actually talk about him killing all these people, women and children. And I, what is the purpose of the Old Testament in the context of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I, I'm not going to be able to tell you that, but I do know that God hates abusing kids. All, all of Canaanite worship, all Baal worship, all that is about burning your children in the fire. Sacrificing. King Hezekiah was the third born. His father had gotten rid of the other three or something that happened to him. 
and Israel's participating in, it's corruption, it's absolute corruption. And in the midst of that, we have uh, Hannah. We have a remnant. Just like I told the class last week, the, the, the tree that Israel would proclaim as representative of them is the olive tree. And olives get put on a crop every year and at the end, you can harvest the olives. And now they have these shakers. They put down these big uh, white sheets and they have these shakers that can and shake the olive. But at the very top of that tree, there's always olives that you cannot get off. You don't have poles long enough to reach them. You know what I mean? And Israel would tell you, that's the remnant. There's always going to be a remnant. Hannah was part of the remnant. And from Hannah and her faithfulness came Shemuel and Samuel was that much right, more righteous. And even Samuel raised just horrible sons. But it, out of all that, there's a remnant until we come 700 years later and there's a king who nobody can kill. The whole point of the Gospel of John is that Jesus was in control from the time that they arrested Him until the time they crucified Him. And at any moment, He could have called down 10,000 angels. And he did. But He did that for us. It's an incredible story. You know, uh, Phyllis Tickle, you might know who Phyllis Tickle is. Phyllis Tickle wrote a book, The 5,000 Year Leap or 500 Year Leap or some leap. <coughs> And she's doing a seminar. She's 80 years old. And she's doing a seminar uh, for Bible scholars. And uh, she's mesmerized these Bible scholars. And just think about an 80 year old woman trouncing up and down the aisles, just preaching from the top of her lungs. And at the end of it, everybody was leaving. And she noticed that this little Iranian man who had been a waiter, who had been a servant, was sitting and he was just looking like this and he, just, he was just saying it's just so beautiful it's so beautiful and, and she said son what are you talking about and she said that story it is so compelling it is so beautiful and many of us go to church our whole lives and we don't capture that magic because that's magic. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And if you don't have all these, this just makes it that much more richer. Adios. Thank you.